0: The whole founding of Ananda India. I, I would like to just be more informal this afternoon, if you don't mind, and let's just chat about whatever interests us. And I'm going to remain seated, so if you need to adjust yourself. Um, the whole founding of Ananda India, I, I witnessed, uh, you know, intermittently, slightly from a distance. And I, the, the, when I wrote this book, it's not a journalist's biography. You know, a, a journalist's biography would go and gather lots of information and then write an objective story. Phil Goldberg wrote a recent biography of Master, for example, and he has no position in the book. He just gives a journalist's report. And so most biographies, When I was, while I was writing that book, I was reading other giant biographies of complicated people or situations just to give myself confidence that it could be done. <laughs> So, I read mostly about political figures or historical figures, but I could see that they never met their subject. They never had a personal relationship. They never had any, there was never the the I pronoun in the book, except very, very rarely, um, because of the author's point of view. So, I picked up this story about Swami Kriyananda because he told me that he wanted me to write about him. He told me when I was 24, I believe it was within the first year that I was there. I came in June, and for some reason I feel like it happened in the spring, but I really, that would be more exact than I can say. But he told me that he wanted me to write about him someday. And oddly enough, it hasn't been until I was here in India talking about this, that you know so many things that happened to us spiritually, Certainly things that happened with him, but many things that happen in our lives it, it doesn't you don't know what it means until a long time later and what happened to me was because he asked me to write about him and because writing for me was the fulcrum point of all my insecurities it's just like I I could do it and I was afraid to do it it was a very the psychology of a it bored me and believe me, it will bore you. (laughs) But nonetheless, it was the fulcrum point of all my insecurities. So by asking me to write a book about him right when I started on the spiritual path, it was an overwhelming challenge and responsibility that I absolutely could not say no to. So it basically, in a certain expression, the phrase, hold your feet to the fire, do you know what that means, you know? It's like, that's what it did for me. He, just, he, get, he put me on a very short leash. And all through 50, 40 years of my life, it, was, it, always, it always had to be considered. And everything I did was confined and defined by that experience. And nothing else that he could have said to me could have held me as tightly. I would have found a way to snip the knot. But I couldn't on this one. Um, So when I finally, you know, when he finally got me through all of the drama that was required for me to just sit down and write the book, um, let's see, where was I going with that? You know, I I had all these notes of all these years because that's what I did for all those years. I always had a notebook and I always carried a notebook. And whenever I would helicopter into these situations, I would always make notes about it, Um, type notes, hand notes. Uh, for a while, I used a recorder, but that was just too... Then there was a whole other step of transcribing, and that didn't work. So I, I just had all these notes of this whole saga of his life, but only from my point of view. It's, it's like I say, in, I say in the introduction to the book, many important things happened. Like, I was not involved very much in Europe. He involved me in India, and he involved me in much of the United States, but for Europe, not very much. So I just have a little bits and pieces because I didn't really see it. So it's it's, it's like the biography of a great spiritual person has to be written by someone who understands who that person is. Phil Goldberg's book is an interesting book, but to my mind it's fatally flawed because he tries so hard to be neutral. You know, and it's you can't. It's hard to write a book about an avatar and be neutral. I'm very, very glad he wrote it, and he did a very good job of just collecting information and stories and facts and so on like that. But when you when you write about a great spiritual figure, Swamiji, this is something that's in the book that was interesting. At the end of Swamiji's life, when he was working on movies, um, several people really wanted to make a movie of autobiography of a yogi. And there was a script, actually, that was presented to him. It was actually a rather complicated parallel realities as to whether Swami had approved that script or not approved the script. I actually think now it's going to be made into a movie, finally. Um, But Swamiji felt, even though everybody who wanted to make a movie about Master wanted to make a movie about autobiography... Swami felt that Autobiography does not present Master as the great avatar that he is. <clears throat> and Swamiji felt powerfully <clears throat> that as a disciple, it was not appropriate for him to make a movie of Autobiography of a Yogi. Isn't that interesting? Because the movie that he would make would have to show Master's greatness, and Autobiography of a Yogi didn't. And so he got into, as I said, a sort of complicated misunderstanding with the man who thought Swami had approved Autobiography of a Yogi as a Movie. But but what was interesting was his saying, my responsibility as a disciple is to show Master as he truly was, which Master himself did not do in his own book. And I just present that just in the context of the conversation because there were so many subtleties about discipleship that... um, Because I I helicoptered into the controversy about the autobiography of a yogi movie. (laughs) And I had conversations with Swamiji. And then, see, the most fun about Swami is he would have five conversations with five different people and they'd be completely different. And one of the most fun things I've been part of since is when anybody who had direct contact with Swami tries to express his point of view on some subject because it can just be so different depending on which facet of the diamond he was listening to. And the great adventure is trying to understand among all the different instructions he gave to all the different people, what kind of a a thread goes now, which is again, what I was trying to do in that book, above all things, was not so much to say what Swami did, but why he did it. Because as we go forward, and many of you who had little or no direct contact with Swamiji, and yet will have and do have the responsibility for carrying on this branch of Master's work, we have to be careful not to just do it according to our preferences, because our preferences are what they are. Um, When Swamiji was encouraging us in America to do fewer Indian chants, because he said, Master actually did very few. And that he he just didn't think it was appropriate for us to go that far. He had to say, this has nothing to do with my preferences. Because Swami himself said that he, he liked the Indian bhav far better than any other bhav. But because Master had taken the trouble to give us all these English chants, and he could have just given us Sri Ram, J. Ram, J. J. Ram, because he certainly knew it. But he didn't. He gave us a whole different way of singing that everything we do has to be adjusted according to what the intention was. Swamiji would often make suggestions that were very hard to comprehend. Just You just couldn't quite feel what he was getting at. And then people would dispute him because not all of his ideas were good. I mean, practical or, or fully informed might be a better way to say it. He might imagine that such and so a person was either available to do a certain job or competent to do that job, but somebody else might know that circumstances were different and it wasn't a good idea. And Swami would often change his mind when given new information. So the tendency after a great soul leaves the earth is to quote him and say, well, this is what he wanted, this is what he said, this is what he did. Um, And in, in Swami's life, people would quote Master to him in that way. But he would always say, it wasn't a question of what Master did, it was a question of what Master would do now if faced with these particular circumstances. So what I tried to give people in that book, and I ended up doing it to a very large extent through Swami's own words, is an understanding of how he reasoned it out and what the principle was. Because then we can become active disciples ourselves, and really try to feel, you know, in this circumstance what would happen. And it's 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 already... A challenge. I mean, I've already been through, am, am in the middle of, and have been through many differences of opinion that we're all just going to have to work our way through over time. I, I, I thought of all of this because I was thinking, I was starting to say at the beginning of the building of Ananda in India, you know, just everybody going in so many different directions, and Swami just having so many different initiatives that he was running at the same time. And all of us, I less than the people who were living here, but from the other side of the ocean, from the other side of the world, I was in it too, raising money or helping in one way or another. But he was just, I remember at one time I said to him, Swamiji, I don't think it really matters what anyone else does. I think you're just doing the necessary tapasya to to, to plant the roots that will then come forward as a tree. He didn't entirely agree, but nor did he dispute me. Because I think the way things happen is not linear. You know, this property, which I'm not going to step into the middle of the conversations about this because I know that there's many different points of view, but this is just to be here again after six years was the last time I was here. You know, and, and just see the complexity of karma that's played itself out here, the amount of energy that has been put into it, the aspirations that were not realized the aspirations that may yet be realized. You know, we just all have to um, move forward with our hearts and minds open and try to understand. You know, Ananda's never been a straight line. It's it's just been this circular pattern of... And it's not... Swami also said that in SRF, they talk a lot about the blueprint that Master put into the ether... And Swami just he said people talk about that like it was a 500-page manifesto in single-space type, you know, year by year, month by month, and what he said instead was, Master um, responded to opportunities as they presented themselves, and he would gauge each opportunity as to whether or not it it would carry forth with the right vibration. And then Master would try to move with that opportunity, if it had the right vibration, just to see where it would go. And a great many things that Master started did not continue. And you know, it's, it, when we think of someone being omnipotent, we imagine that everything in this world will actually work out. But it doesn't. Often it moves energy in a certain way or it lays down a template. And then that template is what is the actual issue. I mean, Master bought a papaya grove and he had a flower farm and he had a goat milk dairy and he had a carrot juice factory and he tried to have a community in Encinitas. He tried to start a school for children at Mount Washington. He tried to start a college at Mount Washington. I mean, none none of these things are left. And my favorite of all, of course, is that he made the little device he called the Temple of Silence, which was like earplugs like this but then it had this little thing in front with a, a little picture of the spiritual eye. So you put this thing on like this and then sort of boing in front of you was a spiritual eye. You read, you read the early Self-Realization Fellowship magazines, the 20s and the 30s. It's full of ads for all these little businesses. And that takes you a few minutes to realize that the address for all of them is Mount Washington. <laughs> that he was just making energy move and trying to make things happen. Swami said it was very frustrating for him. He said if he if he suggested nine things and <clears throat> the tenth idea was somebody else's but was the best idea, he said much of the time he was just trying to get energy moving. And then once energy is moving, then it can be refined. He said they would take my bad ideas and then blame me when they failed, he said, <laughs> instead of following through on the, the one that they had that was better. You know, so I've found, and this applies to... Now, also for everything that we decide, you know, well, we say what is trying to happen. I would think with Swamiji, what is he trying to accomplish? Not what did he suggest, but what is he trying to accomplish? Because if you think about what are we trying to accomplish, then you can discern among. Because many of you have asked repeatedly, how can you tell? How can I tell if I'm in tune? How can I have superconscious intuition? How can I? tell God's will from mine? I mean, all very valid questions. The reason they keep being asked is because you can't answer them. And and it's it's one of those questions where you keep asking it, thinking that finally it's going to settle and that this is, this is how I can tell it's God's will and this is how I can tell it's not. Not usually. Usually one is faced with the necessity to act because life demands it of us and we have to make decisions. And Many of our decisions are quite messy and they're just not clear cut. But the idea is, what am I trying to accomplish? What is Master trying to accomplish through me? Does this opportunity have the vibration of what we're trying to do? And then we just move with it a little bit. And most things are not cosmic in their implications. I mean, most of us are just not important enough to have what we do matter. And I finally realized that. (laughs) I finally realized that God really did not have a specific plan for me because I was just too small an ant, you know, on the heap. And I could make my life better or worse, that's a fact. But I couldn't ruin it. I could just make it easier or harder. I was saying in one of the sessions, a mistake... I mean, God wants us to be happy, to know that we're loved, and to to share that vibration... Jesus saying to Dr. Ritchie, how much have you loved? That is 100% of the answer to what's God's will for me. How much have you loved? And certain circumstances, it's easier to do that because it's more in the flow of who we are. Swamiji said when he first came to master, master had him working construction. And Swamiji said he was just terrible at it. He, He just later at the end of it, when he finally was off that work, he said to the foreman, Gee, I sure learned a lot on this job. And the foreman just sort of looked at him like, Did you? Really? (laughs) Because Swami just, he wasn't good at it. He just couldn't do it. Um, But he did it cheerfully enough. But then Master put him to answering letters and speaking and counseling. And and he said it was easier for him to feel God flowing through him when he did that kind of work because it was more natural to him. It wasn't impossible for him to feel it when he was pouring cement and building buildings. It was just more natural for him to feel it in this way. So I've really come to understand some things are more natural to us. And therefore, if there's less less internal obstruction, then it's easier to, to feel intuitive and have a flow. If we make mistakes... We put ourselves in circumstances, whether it's personal or professional or whatever it is, in which it's a little harder to feel that. But that is like 100% of the difference. We seem to think it either is or it isn't God's will. That's not at all true. It's just if we're really in the flow, it's easier to feel God's presence. It doesn't mean things go, go easier or anything like that. It's just that we're where we should be. If we get a little confused, it's a little harder. We set ourselves up with conditions of people who aren't supportive or we run out of money or work is hard to come by. So it's just more challenging. But everything is neutral. Absolutely everything is neutral. I'm actually answering two of the written questions I have, which are how to be in tune, what is attunement? And I think it's just life. I mean, it really is. It's just life. It's life tried to live in an uplifted manner. I mean, that's all attunement is. It's just saying I'm living for God. I will be courageous. I will be positive. I will try to be even-minded. That's, that's it. Again, we, we complicate the situation by feeling that God is not our friend and is going to make unreasonable demands on us unless we sort out a puzzle that can't be sorted out. And then what we get from that is we get to be nervous all the time, which is basically Satan's way of keeping us from where we're trying to go. So the most important thing is not to worry. I, I said in another context, Swamiji said, even when Master corrected them, him with a lot of force, no matter what Master said to him, he always felt encouraged. After Whatever Master said... Swamiji said, it always made you feel stronger and more capable of going forward. And then Swamiji said, whenever you feel discouraged, you can be absolutely certain that Satan has a hold of you. I think that's one of the most useful things I've heard in a really long time. And see what happens, Satan is super clever. He makes you feel you have to relate to him. That's how Swami put it. He makes you feel that, oh, that's an important point. I have to worry about it. Oh, maybe that's really true. I have to think about it. But all we actually have to do is repudiate it. And it doesn't really require any analysis to repudiate it. I feel discouraged. I feel worthless in the eyes of God. Therefore, this is false. Because if it were Master speaking to me, I would feel strengthened and encouraged. So then we just have to go back to whatever point um, we can stand on Sister Gyanamata gave incredibly good advice for being a disciple. She said, you must base your spiritual life on whatever ground is unshakably firm in your faith, which may mean master is a true avatar. That may be the only part of the spiritual path that you can believe. Or I am a sincere devotee. That may be the only part of the spiritual path that you can believe. You might not really believe that Kriya works. You might not know who Swami Kriyananda was. You might not be sure if Ananda's your path. And you may be able to tentatively assert all these other things. But But one, this is part of the humility and the honesty. You have to be able to comfortably bring your spiritual path back to a point of absolute unshakable faith. And so that no matter what happens to challenge you, you can always go back and stand there and have that be enough. Does that make sense? Because otherwise, we're always trying to protect ourselves about uh, against possible anxieties. There was this woman at Ananda who was so insecure; she was always worried about everything. And Swamiji said to her one day, after you know counseling her for the whatever the time, he said to her, "Look, you're always worried about all these things." He said, just for the sake of experiment, let's assume they're all true. (coughs) That every fear that you have about yourself, let's assume they're all true. He said, let's just take it all the way down to the absolute bottom of your worst fears and then let's see what you have left. And it's actually, it's a very good spiritual technique. You know, that I, I, because she could take it all the way back to, I may be utterly incompetent I may have no future as a devotee, I may never accomplish anything, but I love Master and I'm very sincere. And what I do, what I have done, is I project myself all the way to my life review and I bring to Master whatever little thing I'm sure of. (laughs) You know, It's like I wanted to bring a whole bushel basket full of accomplishments, but all I can actually bring is, you know, I didn't quit. I was very sincere. I was misguided, but I meant well, (laughs) you know, (laughs) and I highly recommend, take it down as far as you can take it, because then when Satan tries to tell you you're no good, there's no argument, (laughs) you say, well, of course, I never thought I was any of those things, but I'm very sincere and I meant well, and then he can't touch you, you know, uh, insecurity can't touch you, see how powerful that is? You have to outsmart him at his own game. Uh, uh, Do we have any questions or comments or thoughts or things we'd like to talk about? I didn't mean to hold forth for so long, but there I did. I have a secret one if nobody else asks. Some of you were here last night when Kavita brought up this statement that she attributed to Jaya. Those of you who are here are gonna start laughing. Kavita, am I quoting it directly? The entrenched vitality of our mortal delusion. Is that right? Okay, took me a while to remember it. Last night, Kavita opened her ubiquitous notebook and said that Jaya, who wasn't present to defend himself, (laughs) had used that phrase, the entrenched vitality of our mortal delusion in reference to the kundalini in a kriya initiation, right? Jaya's neither confirming nor denying any of this. He agrees. He's 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 conceded that he could have said it. I caught him. I caught him in a re- moment of relative privacy, so as not to embarrass him. I'm embarrassing him now, but Jaya, you might need to keep the microphone in your hand because you might want to defend yourself as I go forward. (laughs) But I had fun talking to Kavita because I didn't have the foggiest idea what that meant. I mean, not even a little bit. I actually thought about it all night long. I mean, I thought about it overnight and, and came up with a theory that I was able to propose to Jaya this afternoon, which... He has more confirmed than denied. (laughs) Do you want to explain what that means? Because I couldn't tell them at all yesterday what it meant. Now, uh,
1: she asked me about that quote. And uh, I was trying to remember, because I was, it's not, I didn't make that up. I was quoting something that Swami either had said or had written. And Mm -hmm. I was trying to rack my brain as to where I that had come from. And I'm pretty sure it comes from the art and science of Raja Yoga in his reference to Kundalini in there. And so I now somebody, now we were looking here for the book and seeing if it was here where we
0: did find it. We'll find it later and but see. we'll see
1: if it's true or not, if it's in that book. But uh, it's, it's in reference to the Kundalini. And so then Asha and I were just discussing the entrenched, it's a key word, vitality of, referring to kundalini, uh, of our, our, uh, mortal delusion. our mortal delusion, which of course is, uh, is uh, what we, you know, this mortal body and this delusive nature of this uh, material existence. And so, anyway, yes, it does. Is I remember it, and probably I would have used it in a Kriya ceremony, referencing uh, the energy, the kundalini, and I... Probably would have used it because it just sounds so nice. That's I it. Mean, it's such, a, it's such an elegant phrase that I obviously could not have made it up. <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> and so it was probably something Swami had said. Well, but k- we, haven't, we have to check.
0: Well, uh, Kavita. K- Kavita's. Did you mention that Swami said this? Online Online Okay.
1: Okay, I mean, I'm not 100% sure where that came from, but it would it would be, uh, but yes, I do feel it was some. I it to Swami. Yeah,
0: I don't think any of us would dare to make it up. That's what. I can't see somebody. But what I what I think think it, (laughs) what I think it means, and Jaya does not dispute, (laughs) is when uh, when Spirit descends into the human body, and we can even just talk about it as when you incarnate, when. Master said the sperm and the ovum, when they come together, it, it, the first cell is right here at the medulla. And then if you look at the um, little photograph books of your developing embryo, you know, the pregnancy books that they make, after the first thing that happens when the baby is born is it looks like a little, a little matchstick. It's just like the, the embryo begins as a matchstick, which is basically from the top to the bottom of the spine. It's, just, it's really interesting when you think of it like that. And what um, Swami has said in other places is that the, the kundalini is, is life force. And that's why he use the word vitality. It's <clears throat> the Kundalini is the spiritual force in the body um, because everything is spiritual force. And it descends all the way to the base chakra because it has to come all the way down to the earth element in order to make a physical body. And for anyone to be in a physical body, you have to have all the chakras from, you know, from the earth to the, <clears throat> to the crown chakra. It's interesting because a human body can exist from the head to the juncture of the thighs. We can exist without arms and without legs. But you can't make the body any smaller than that and still survive because it, in, in the principle of it, the astral pattern is that long and if you if you go farther than that in the astral pattern either from the top or the bottom then you've broken the life pattern but the rest of it is is superfluous it's sort of an interesting way to think about it so the kundalini descends all the way to the earth element which is the bottom chakra and it it commits itself there and that's where the word in, yeah that's where the word entrenched comes because it commits itself to, to earth and that's here we are now whether that commitment to earth the earth element is misguided spiritually, which is to say, if we begin to seek our self-definition and our security through the material world, that's a misguided um, expression of the earth chakra, but it's not possible to incarnate without having the earth chakra. So that vitality becomes entrenched, exactly. It becomes fixed at that point. And then for most people, it also expresses in what I tend to call a horizontal direction, which is if you think of the chakras vertically like this, ideally, and and since most of you have Kriya, you understand this, the energy circulates among all those chakras, but it actually focuses at the spiritual eye. But we we tend to talk about chakras being blocked, but chakras actually leak, is what they really do, (laughs) because instead of the energy circulating in cooperation with the spiritual eye, it tends to reach out and seek satisfaction on the level of whatever that chakra represents, whether it's the earth element, meaning the material world, the water element, meaning change and adventure, and, and it's also sexuality, but it's just all that sort of stimulating, or whether it circulates, draws the the positive dimension of those qualities and then expresses it in conformance with the spiritual eye. But the vitality is entrenched there, and for most people, that energy is dissipated. It's dissipated out in, into another di- direction, which becomes the entrenched vitality of our mortal delusion, because it's the physical body that gives us the delusion that we are mortal, because the physical body is mortal. As soon as it begins, it begins to change. It it doesn't, it's not unchanging. And it begins to age. Of course, it ages up to a point of of the the apex of its development and then it begins to decline again. But it's always heading for its demise uh, because it's mortal. So the kundalini is held, it's entrenched. The vitality, your life force vitality is entrenched in the delusion that we're mortal which, of course, limits our potential in countless ways until we, we were trying to think of the, the opposite of, until we untrench it <laughs> or anti-trench it or <laughs> out-trench it, <laughs> whatever it might be. Well, he's found it. Look. I it of- Swami disagrees with us? No, he oh, with, thank with, you. Well, where, where are we?
1: So, um, this is the phrase. Oh, there it itself. is.
0: God bless you.
1: And there's leading up to it.
0: You know, before th- all of this, we could argue about objective facts. Is
1: it from
0: the Roger book? It is. Okay. Through the medulla oblongata, energy enters the body from the cosmic source. I, I did ask Darna, did he agree with us? It would have been awful if we'd had to backtrack starting now. <laughs> In this. Um, you know, these five attitudes of the spiritual path, there's another five elements, different elements. I actually, I gave a whole class on a word that I just made up because I looked at it without my reading glasses and I read it as the wrong word. So I gave this whole convincing class on this point that simply didn't exist. (laughs) And the following week, I had to just repudiate everything I said and start over. <laughs> My points were good, but I just completely made them up, so I'm glad we're not having to do that. Okay. <clears throat> Through the medulla oblongata, energy enters the body from the cosmic source. Positively directed, this energy flows into the brain and to the point between the eyebrows. Negatively directed, away from the consciousness of divine union, it flows downward to the base of the spine. Outwardly directed, as we have already seen, it flows into the ear than the Pingala, there to assume the secondary positive-negative flux of superficial likes and dislikes, which is why we read this book over and over again. Okay. <laughs> the ebb and flow of energy in the ear and the Pingala is really only an echo of the much more powerful contest. Contest. Isn't that a nice word? The mu- much more powerful contest between the positive and negative pulls in the brain and at the base of the spine. Whatever energy flows in the superficial spine, even by deep yoga practice, is as nothing compared to the immense reservoir of energy waiting to be tapped at the base of the spine. This energy is spoken of in the yoga teachings as kundalini, the coiled, named also the serpent power. Kundalini represents, here it comes, the entrenched vitality of our mortal delusion. Well, done, Jaya. But Kundalini is also man's greatest single key to enlightenment. Only by arousing this force from its ancient resistance to divine truth can the soul hope to reunite itself with the spirit. Whoa, that's good. Yeah. I, no, it really is. You know, but I just, you know, when I was when I was working on writing this book about Swamiji, I couldn't read any of his books. You would think I would, but I couldn't because he wrote so well that it just absolutely demoralized me. <laughs> I mean, you know, it really did. I read biographies by other people. I had trouble even listening to him talk because he was just so much better than I could ever be. So I listened to him read P.G. Woodhouse stories. (laughs) I mean, even myself, I thought, what am I doing? So I listened to his voice reading P.G. Woodhouse stories. I read biographies, other long, complicated biographies, but I couldn't read his writing because it was too good. I mean, even right here, look at this. You know, I got this Raja Yoga course in 1972, I think is when he wrote the revised version of it. I think I got the, the first version that he wrote in 68 or 69. Then he rewrote it in 1972-ish. And I had that. And it was not in a book form. It was Xerox mimeograph sheets in separate lessons that I kept in a loose-leaf notebook. And the, the content, I don't think he ever went back and re-edited this book. Or if he did, it was very little. They played with the yoga posture sections, but I'm not sure he touched it. I think he was just satisfied. I had that same copy. I had it, even after it became a book, I kept that copy for decades. I had margin in the notes. I had underlined things. i you know, done all this stuff because I'd read it countless times. I would go back and read that and I would find underlined portions with my handwriting in the margin that I know were not in the book when I read it before. <laughs> I was just certain because it just had so much in it. So I read this right here and he says, only by arousing this force, the Kundalini force, which is the entrenched vitality of our mortal delusion, from its ancient and here's the word resistance to divine truth. Isn't that an exact word? You know, it's it's not against it, it doesn't counter it, it just resists it. Which is exactly how it feels with us. It's like we're just like we know we're gonna have to go there but we're just not quite going to do it or we're going to just dig in our heels and be dragged, you know, or take the wheels off the wagon and make it be hauled without any wheels. But it's not that we're not going to do it. It's that we're just going to resist it. Isn't it? I mean, every word he wrote, he knew exactly what he wanted to say. You, you, You can spend your whole... He even called it, it's ancient resistance. It's ancient resistance to divine truth. Okay, thank you. And now we know. And thank you, Kavita, for bringing that up. That was lots of fun. So, what else? Any other questions? Thoughts? Anything on your mind, Jaya, that you want to say? Okay. (laughs) What is a light-bearer? When Swami Kriyananda in uh, 1982, 83, which would have been about 1985, he could see the direction of Ananda. He could see where we were going. We had begun to really move into Europe at that point. We might have even had a few people in Australia by then. I'm not quite sure when they went. We were really getting serious about having centers other than our forest ashram. So for the first 10 years or more, we, we really just lived up in the forest by ourselves. And we invited people to come and visit us, but we weren't really aggressive about it. We weren't that effective. We just sort of did a little bit of that. And so we, could, we, we basically demanded that people come into our world And if they wanted to come into the world that we were in, that was just fine, but we were not putting out a tremendous amount of energy to go into their world. About 78, 79, after Ananda burned down, and we had to sort of start thinking differently, and after Swamiji published The Path, he took Jyotish and Devi and started an ashram in San Francisco, which was a a really big change for us. And Swamiji cut his hair. He'd always worn it long yogic style. He cut it short. He'd always, when he went to lecture, he wore a a kurta, orange kurta and a dhoti. He started lecturing in a Western sports jacket and a tie and a shirt. His actual words were, if you want to convert the heathen, it helps if you look more like the heathen, is what he said. (laughs) In other words, we just needed to be more. He felt that it was an unnecessary obstacle to make people become Indian before they could become self-realizationists, when since we were in America at that point, he also thought it confused people because they had a, more of a fantasy idea of what India was than a, a a deep idea. So, when we when he started trying to expand the locations of Ananda, more leaders were required, and more people had to stand up and take. The roles of acharyas, and Swami began to think more deeply about the qualities that were required to be in that kind of a position. And it was always clear to Swamiji that the capacity to be an interesting speaker is not necessarily the same as being an advanced soul or even a good devotee. It's just it's a it's a, it's a particular ability that may or may not relate to a person's spiritual depth. So he also saw that the number of people who are really inherently fascinating speakers is is many fewer than those who are very good devotees and have a lot to share. So he saw that if the future of Ananda's work depended on the talent that people had to speak, that one, the wrong people, might end up in positions of influence, and because they happen to be articulate, um, and many people who had a great deal to share would have no opportunity to do it. So he created at that time um, what he called the festival of light, which has, bears a certain resemblance to the Catholic mass, and also includes the R T, the R..RT portion and the blessing portion, which is often used over here, but is more than that. It's about, it's about a 15-minute ritual maybe 20, with certain songs and very, a very poetic description of the entirety of our spiritual path. The soul's long journey in poetic form described and redescribed. Most of you at least know it somewhat. In America, we do it every Sunday morning, so we have it practically memorized. Um, and that included the opportunity for wh- whoever the, uh, the pujari was, the priest who was doing it, also to give the touch of light to individuals. And at that point, Swami decided what, the individuals who were authorized to what what he called give, give the touch of light, he decided to call them light bearers, which was an obvious reason because they were those who would bear the light. He also wanted it to be an affirmation for all disciples that we should think of ourselves is that's who we are. We're people who carry the light, who bear the light. Light carrier doesn't sound as well, so light bearer is a better word. And he he wanted also those who had leadership positions at Ananda to define themselves differently than we were mostly defining ourselves. He wanted us to see that what we really had to give was the light on behalf of the masters. So that's how it became... How it became the name of my book was more convoluted. I had no idea what to call this book, so I called it Swami Kriyananda, Disciple of Paramhansa Yogananda, which some people thought lacked a certain poetic zing to it. Um, So I tried to think of what to call it, and I decided I would call it dare to be different, dare to be free, which I thought was great. The designer told me that it was about 100,000 words and that was about 99,000 words too many for the cover of a book. (laughs) Um, So I asked a friend of mine, Robert Zadick, who's very clever to suggest titles to me. He started, he gave me a page or two of them, none of which I particularly liked. I tried to get the designer to deal with Dare to Be Different, he just wouldn't, pretty much. His, His actual way, and forgive me to Ginger if you hear this, but he's very clever. If you give him a bad idea, he makes a terrible design out of it. <laughs> and then he takes his idea and makes a beautiful design. <laughs> he never actually made a terrible design out of that. He just kept refusing to do it. So he came up with the idea of disciple. It was going to be Swami Kriyananda disciple, which, I mean, that was fun, except in in the West, disciple usually means Jesus. So it was a bit limited. And uncharacteristic of me, I was asking everyone's opinion. Usually I don't ask anyone's opinion. I just do what I want. So because I was completely at sea on this, I had about 30 people and I was just emailing them the different designs and emailing them the different pictures. And if you ask 30 people, you have 38 opinions. You know, you just have, everybody has an opinion. It's just, it's just sailing around. And then Robert Zadick saw Disciple. And for reasons I don't recall, he thought it was horrid. Just, I don't remember why, but he sent me a very long email about how horrid it was and sent me several other of the ideas he had, which for some reason I noticed Lightbearer, which had always been there. And because it would fit on the design nicely and it was a single word and it matched to Ginger's design, I stuck it on there and had to Ginger do it. Then I sent it to my 30 people and got 38 different opinions, mostly against it about it was incomprehensible, who would know what it meant, it's much too long a word, you know, on like this. Then I woke up one morning and basically Swami said, the title of the book is Light Bearer. So I just wrote everybody and I said, conversation over. (laughs) And they all agreed. And somehow ever since then, I've been absolutely at peace with it. It's just felt exactly like what it should be. So the very first page of the book defines a light bearer is one who, ups, who by his very consciousness uplifts the consciousness of others, which is actually—it's a beautiful affirmation and a place to start. So that's how it happened. Swami wanted the light bearers to wear lavender. Lavender, he said, was the vibration of our ray of grace. A number of the men in the community actually thought that they would rather die than wear <laughs> lavender. <laughs> Someone. <laughs> Brian Powers, Brian Powers, for those of you who know him, was very witty. He was asked to take some training course or something he didn't want to do. And if he asked instead, he could just take a bullet for Swamiji. <laughs> you know, I'll do the tapasya of this, taro- this, this, this course or I'll just take a bullet. Can I? I think that's how the men felt about the lavender. So it, it died a natural death. I tried to resurrect it, which was nearly the end of my friendship with a number of people. I... I showed up at Ananda Village with all this lavender silk and I had it all worked out how we were going to do it. And really, I really thought those men were going to poison my coffee. <laughs> and then it was, just, it was just one of those meetings where like they all sat <laughs> like this. And Swami was far more tuned into it than I was. I mean, suddenly we can do this and this is so pretty. And he just let it, he just let it die. <laughs> but it was interesting You know, even that he suggested it. I did put that in the book, not not to cast aspersions on anyone because of what he said. Lavender is the vibration of our ray of grace. It's just, you know, people talk about the lavender ray. Swami didn't know that, but it just was interesting. It's interesting how he would just pull things out like that. And and himself, when he, for 12 years, he was not a sannyasi. He was married for some of that time, but he, he stepped away from officially being a swami and he wore lavender during that time that was that was his color and a lot of other people wore lavender most of us actually looked pretty terrible in lavender so there was something valid about that those people's concern but swami looked beautiful in it and just wore it all the time with quite without any uh inhibition whatsoever i i partly w- want people to know that because you know lots of things are possible the death of ananda will be when we become rigid and are afraid to just do things that are just outside the box. It doesn't mean just because it's wacky that it's a good idea. But just because it's wacky does not mean it's not a good idea either. You know, we just have to have a little bit more freedom. I tell people in our community, you know, we can be as creative as we want. You can be as creative as you want. But you have to be open to feedback. Merely because you like it doesn't mean it's a good idea for all of Ananda. And what is good for you personally might not be good for all of Ananda, but it might be. And we at least have to just have a little freedom of imagination to just try things out. Who knows? You know, like that. <laughs> yeah. I don't think Jaya was in the room, but I think he was in the room in spirit when the lavender was going on. <laughs> Yeah, the conversation was going around, really. It had died a natural death, so when I resurrected it, it was I was, not my, I was not the most popular person at Ananda when I resurrected that. <laughs> Dharana?
1: I have a question if uh, no one else does. It. I, I've been noticing a lot of quietness. Uh-huh. Um, for each of the five attitudes that mm-hmm. Swamiji encourages, can you maybe tell us, illustrate a favorite story of yours of Swamiji exemplifying some of those attitudes? Oh, dear. No is a valid response.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, the problem is... uh, I'm just not sure that I can because it's too... uh, no, let me just think about it for a minute. I don't think I can do it if I if I if it'll come to me because it just the stories are not in a catalog. It's not an encyclopedia like that, so I just right at the moment I can't think how to do it. I I will I will try. I'll think about it before tomorrow. Okay. Anything else? That was a nice try, Darna. That was very good. <laughs> Okay. Okay. Are there any other uh, instances when Swamiji came up with an idea and the others didn't agree with it and he let it go? Oh, many, many, many times. (laughs) (laughs) Swamiji said once that Ananda was 90% compromise. I mean, one was, he tried, he wanted really from the very beginning, he wanted to build an actual village. He wanted a unified architectural picture of Ananda. He thought, this is Master's World Brotherhood colony. When people come in, they ought to see something that's charming and unusual looking. And uh, and, and the people who are coming were independent. I'm gonna build my own house the way I want it, and it's gonna be my little place. Almost none, we were almost all Americans, virtually all Americans. Almost none of us had ever been out of the country. We'd never seen a European village. We'd never seen even an Indian village. I mean, where even with very simple materials, if you build in a consistent way with the same materials, you end up with a a certain charm to it that you don't have when it's just higgly piggly like this. So he tried very hard at the beginning to get us even to think in terms of unified architecture. What to speak of thinking in any way that was even slightly creative or artistic, instead of completely utilitarian. I mean, this is when we were an inch off the ground, so you could even consider like this. Then he made another attempt after the fire, after much of Ananda burned down. Um, And then somewhere in there, he he went to Europe and he saw these um, manufactured homes that the origin of the ones he saw were from Sweden. And that was important because ever thereafter we called them Swedish homes. So he, he suggested that we could solve... He wrote from Europe that he'd seen these charming Swedish houses prefab, prefabricated. We could put them up fast. They would be cheap. And and he thought the design was very attractive. He was, he was working back toward that. If we're going to rebuild the whole thing again, maybe I have a second... He thought I have a second chance at this. Um, now... Let me think how this. N- nobody at the village, I-, I had nothing to do with this administratively. I was not even living, well, I was living there. J- Jaya's smiling because he's probably part of it. And I'll, I'll give you your chance in just a second. No, no, I love this. But but so nobody comprehended it at all. And when Swami finally built his own house in Assisi, he got one of those prefabricated houses. Did you help build his Assisi house? yeah which and i think there was it wasn't as simple or as inexpensive as they thought and it wasn't from and it wasn't from sweden by then it was from romania right so i put this whole story in the book about because i put it in from the point of view of you know just swami attempting finally swami said when he finally just saw what had happened he he said it like this well he said we can always plant a lot of trees You know, because he just, he never got close to getting what he wanted. So when I put this story in my book, and I had sent the manuscript around, I got a call from Dharmadas, or maybe I was talking to him. Of course, you all know Dharmadas. Dharmadas reads about the Swedish houses, and he writes, I'm writing this whole story about Swami's intention. Now, Dharmadas had a total other relationship to Swedish houses, which, of course, I knew nothing about, which is the fun of this book. He was a builder at that time in partnership with a man named Michael Gornick. And the responsibility for sorting out the Swedish houses was given to Michael and Darmadas. And all they could think of was in dollars and cents and practical terms. So they, there was no internet then, so they got on long-distance phone calls to people in Sweden And they're trying to find out, what the heck is this? What are we buying? You know, what are we shipping over from Sweden? What are these things made out of? And there wasn't a lot of English on the Sweden side. So they're going through a dictionary. And finally, the guy says, particle board. Now, the word is particle board, the way we pronounce it, which is this pressed, pressed wood board. But it was called particle board. And Dharmadas and Michael think, we are not importing particle board all the way from Sweden, you know? We can just go down the hill and buy particle board and we can nail it together. So they basically just killed the project like that. At 10 years later, Dharmadas said, it occurred to him what Swami was trying to do. That these were, these had a certain charm to them. They were not completely utilitarian. They were a little bit European looking. They weren't just sort of rough and ready Uh, Western style. He was trying to get a unified look. He was trying to get a lot of imagination. Dharmadas said 100% of that went over his head. He just thought, why would we import particle board from Sweden? And Swami just shrugged his shoulders and gave it up because people are more important than things. And if people were not going to rise to what he saw, then it wasn't... He would lose more than he would gain... By insisting on that one. Now, Jai, what, do you know anything about the particle board Swedish uh, houses? Hold on, hold on. Jai was a builder. You were a builder at that yes, time. That was one of my incarnations. <laughs> <laughs> and you were a community uh, planner too.
1: Yes, I was a community planner. It was it was far too complex to really to do it justice here. Okay, uh, this is
0: the this is the. You get five people in the room, <laughs> and you have five points of view. But But if you write your own book, you get to say what you want. Now go ahead. (laughs) Yes, in
1: in terms of the vision that Swami wanted, he he did want that. uh, He wanted to have a unifying theme, and it uh, was—I mean, obvious. I mean, I think most people in an ideal situation would have—I mean—agreed to that. The way we started out of being very idiosyncratic was just for lots of different reasons. The. uh, But you might want to go back, you know, the original unifying theme was domes. Was domes, right. You see, some of you have been up to the uh, seclusion retreat, meditation retreat, uh, uh, and uh, Swami's original, well, not the original dome, but the one that was actually constructed and he lived in for some time is still there. And... uh, that was uh, a model that Swami was very, very fond of, and it it uh, it had its advocates and the people that liked that dome. And but the idea there again was to try to find something that was quick, easy, inex- inexpensive, and was a little bit gave uh, had some theoretical or spiritual the sense of he liked the dome because it had he felt it had spiritual vibration at, uh, that was enhancing and uh, we actually did try to do that at in manifest that uh after the fire we built one of our clusters, we did about five yeah five, five of six. them i think uh-huh. five of those domes, and they had their advocates uh but they also had their other side of it, people who refused you know <laughs> to to live in a dome and because it had certain disadvantages, and so it ultimately came back to. Uh, people are more important than things, and allowing people to have the creativity individually to express in different ways. It would have been better, of course, to have some unified theme. But uh, yeah. uh, and of course, those Swedish houses would have been much nicer, in my opinion, than the domes. Uh-huh. So, but uh, <laughs> Yeah. It
0: never happened. Okay. So that was. I mean, he he had a design for the expanding light that was completely other than what they built but they had already committed themselves. This was post-fire. This is, again, the stories in the book, the, th- the three original buildings, the dining room and the classroom. It seems like there were three, kitchen, kitchen, dining room, classroom. That design had already been submitted to the county. Swami just had, a com- he wanted the whole retreat, he wanted the whole retreat built in the center of the meadow up there. And and we had built it way at the edges of the meadow. He wanted it right in the center of the meadow. He wanted it to be built in a Spanish mission style, just totally different. But by the time, to to quote him, he put his mind to it, the other plans had already been submitted, and it just people could not, they couldn't see it. He 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 stuck to that one for quite a while. He's he he tried it again, about a year later, but he he just. People couldn't see it. Now, I'm not, I'm not faulting anyone. You have to understand when I say that because God knows Swami Kriyananda wanted to call himself J. Donald Walters for, for a great number of his books because he felt Swami Kriyananda was not a good name and it confused the message. He thought if he had an American name, people would be more interested in his books. He said, I single-handedly prevented him from doing that for many years. So I'm not casting aspersions on people who don't get it. He actually just said that to me, that I would have done it a long time ago, Asha, but you continually thwarted me, was the words he used. And then I reflected on that and I said, I thwarted a lot of things you tried to do, didn't I? He said, yes. I said, I owe you a rather cosmic apology, don't I? He said, yes. (laughs) And there was no ill will between us, but he was right. Same thing, it's just I, for some reason thought I had a good reason why his plan was not a good one. I mean, in retrospect, I think, what could I have been thinking? So when Dharmadas didn't understand Swedish houses or something, or somebody didn't understand the retreat, I have nothing but sympathy for it. And it's also, that's the exact same thing happened to Master. The reason a lot of his initiatives didn't succeed is the people around him thwarted them. Because in one way or another... Their own best interpretation led them to another conclusion. And we imagine that the masters impose their will on us and they don't. They inspire us from the inside and if we're not going to be inspired, they just leave us to the consequences of our own actions. Um, In all of these cases, there were no principles involved. It wasn't like we were violating some divine truth this was just a way of doing things that might have been better but if we were if we couldn't see it he wouldn't um d- d- disempower us by overriding us because his his biggest investment was people buildings can come and go but living representatives of the path are harder to come by than buildings and so his, his he was always working <clears throat> to encourage us. I mean, <laughs> Swamiji asked my opinion about a lot of things. He asked my opinion steadily in emails, in letters, in person, on the telephone. He asked my opinion for about 25 years before it occurred to me that he didn't need it. <laughs> he did it so convincingly <laughs> that I actually thought he needed my opinion. And then one bright day I realized he was just helping me. He was just helping me to think clearly he was just helping me to feel that i had something to contribute and he did it so sincerely that it i it didn't even cross my mind that he was just doing it for my sake i mean it's i know that sounds funny but he was just he was so sincere in the way he helped us that you didn't feel like you were being manipulated or or trained or anything like that you were just being loved and that just carried everything and what that says is that's how we should behave. I mean, it's, I'm not saying that story to say, weren't, wasn't I lucky? Although, thank you, God, I feel incredibly fortunate. Oh, that's how we work with people. We involve them, we talk to them, we listen. And occasionally I had a good idea. I didn't always thwart him. Every so often I actually contributed. But the benefit was infinitely more for me than for him. But, but he loved that. that, that gave him joy. It gave him joy to watch us wake up. It gave him joy to watch us try to attune ourselves and try to match it. And that's what we have to give to each other. Otherwise, I mean, the the question here is how do we spread the love? What are practical ways to do it? Think about how I can help and how I can really help. You know, what will really help a person? And And pray what will really help you you know, if someone's in front of you, how can I help you? And if, if you have that thought, in our, if we have that thought in our minds, it's amazing what comes to us. And we, we don't always help people just by, you know, giving them the right advice and fixing their problems. Often, I, I finally realized that oftentimes Swami, that what, what I began to call was, <coughs> he would just make sympathetic, uh, you know, just sort of, he just be sympathetic, You know, I understand why you feel that way. That was just one of his wonderful lines. You know, I understand why you feel that way. Even if you were completely wrong, he would understand why you felt that way. And that would just give you this sort of sense of um, confirmation that I can take my next step. Because somebody understands. You know, in this world, to have anybody actually genuinely wish someone else well... It's unfortunately it's very rare, and actually genuinely um, see see us for who we are, and have that faith that we're children of God. We'll work it out. You know, I realized at a certain point in my life that a great deal of my running around to try to make people's lives better was actually kind of an insult, because I was always behaving as if they couldn't deal with their life unless I rushed around to fix it for them. And I was a little surprised why some of my well-intentioned things were not so well-received because there was an implied insult in it. Can you understand how subtle that is? It's like, I can deal with my karma, but you can't deal with yours, so I'm going to come in and deal with yours and mine, right, like this. But then people would feel disrespected. Swamiji actually said, when you're counseling people, he said, it's usually a good idea to be sympathetic. But he said, but sometimes it's not a good idea to be too sympathetic. Because it increases the the delusion in someone's mind that their problems are insurmountable. Isn't that interesting? Whereas if you are, are, are compassionate toward them, but also recognize you can handle this. You know, you'll be able to deal with this. This is big and it's going to take a lot, but you can deal with it. And then you don't rush in to take over for them. And so Swami just walked that line all the time. He was perfect at it. <clears throat> I tell a story <coughs> in that Kriyananda book. I'll, I'll tell this, then we'll take a short break. Swamiji, this is about writing. Swamiji had given me a writing project, which was my nemesis. Every time he'd give me a writing project, it would be the end of my life for sometimes for weeks at a time. It was just a nightmare. So he gave me a writing project. I mean, in retrospect, I think I could have done these projects in a half an hour, you know, but they would just loom like huge. I mean, I, could, I actually was capable of doing it. I was just so neurotic. I don't know whether I was tortured to death for some pamphlet I published or something like that, but something happened that made me really insecure. So I could have been because that's my old revolutionary samskars. That's the having to deal with going to prison and being tortured again. Anyway, so he gave me a writing project and it had me completely in a tizzy. And I was in such a tizzy that I just came down to, I I say down because he lived downhill from where I live. So I Walked down the hill to where his house was, and I was having an appointment with him. And I was just absolutely distraught. I mean, that's how I dealt with things. Instead of actually doing them, I just would go into hysterics over it. So, I was in hysterics, and he was sitting in a, an armchair like this. And there was a, an ottoman, a, a hassock between us. I was on the floor on the other side of the hassock, and uh, I was just talking to him actually and just before this or just to make it even more impressive just before this i walked in and there was this woman who was very upset about something and swami was being so supportive she was weeping and he was being so kind to her and you know just showering her with support which i had seen him do and which he had also actually done with me on occasion so i I thought i'd really caught him at the right moment so (laughs) then it's my turn and i'm sitting on the floor like this and And I just start talking about how just overwhelming this is. God knows what I was saying. Fortunately, it's blotted out. I don't think I was 30 yet at this point. I was probably about 25 or 26. And finally, I was just, I couldn't stand anymore. So I'm crying like this. I become aware of the fact that Swami is no longer sitting in front of me. And I hear a little movement off to the side. Now, I took care of Swamiji's house and actually, Swami himself and was quite disorderly, actually. And later on, he had people who took care of his house who gave everyone the impression that he was very tidy, but he was not tidy on his own. He was very creative. Everything was always, you know, just, he was always, all the projects were out. <clears throat> he said, it's just too much trouble to put things away. But I knew where he was and I knew what was there. And what was there was, um when we when we, we had to use a lot of batteries for things, like for cassette players and for um, anything, uh, radio, cassette players, flashlights. And sometimes batteries would get weak, and they'd be like too weak for the cassette player, but they might still work for a flashlight or something. And because we were so poor, you didn't just toss them. So we piled them in this drawer with a little voltage meter, and then every so often somebody would figure out which ones could still be used. It's a job, like when would you ever do that job, right? I'm here and my life is over. I'm just, you know, it's my life is over. I realized that Swami is testing the batteries with the voltage meter. (laughs) Yeah, like I could hardly believe it, you know? (laughs) So I think I coughed a few times, you know, to try to get his attention. And he's just testing the batteries over here. Oh God. And I just, and it was clear he wasn't going to talk to me. He wasn't going to say anything else he was just busy and it was done. And I got a little annoyed. You know, I, I, I never really got mad at Suave, but I was annoyed. I just didn't know what to think. And I took all that energy and I walked up to my trailer and I sat down and I wrote the the darn article. I just banged it out like this. (laughs) And it was pretty good. You know, he liked it. (laughs) So I, you know, I brought it down to him. There it was. The whole drama was over and 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 this is unprecedented in my experience of Swamiji. Three or four days later, not, not that, the part of him ignoring me, that happened more than once, but three or four days later, there's a community satsang that Swami's giving. Swami says, he said, Asha faced a very serious spiritual test this week. He said, if she hadn't passed it, Um, I remembered it as saying she might have left the path, but he said it would have been a serious obstacle to her spiritual progress. He said, there was no way I could help her. She had to face it herself. And he said, I'm pleased to say she passed it. I've never heard Swami say anything like that again. He he walked out. I said, why didn't you tell me? He said, because I didn't think it would help you to know. You know, like what do you do with things like that? What I decided is, why do I ever worry about anything and how do I know what's ever happening? And I mean, I want to draw a universal message because, you know, nobody else is ever going to be in such a crazy, you know, combination of circumstances. But he told me for the, you know, one out of a, a thousand times I, do, I never know what's going on. So why do I draw all these conclusions? You know, why do I make up stories from the past and project stories into the future? I have no idea. It's just in the moment, I have this much of a perspective. I use my common sense. This is, again, this is the answer to the question, God's will, attunement, ego. You know, it all comes down in a very weird way to just common sense. You know, we don't really have, for the most part, we don't have that many choices. We must feed our children or they will go hungry and they may die you know we must go to work or we won't have enough money to have a roof over our head we must answer the summons to go to court and deal with some crazy litigation that's going to happen to us we have to we are compelled to just seek people to love and to try to find people to love us we don't have a choice about any of this we can write big stories about you know vedanta and detachment and this but the fact of the matter is we don't have a choice so we just use our common sense if if we're sincere in our aspiration if we keep our relationship with master just use your common sense and just trust that god's going to just take you step by step i could never have sorted out all that chaos swami knew it because see we see like this it's like a television screen we see what comes in on the left side and what goes out on the right we don't have we don't have any idea what's going on over here we don't have any idea what's going on over here. Swami could look at us and he was not bound by that. So he would answer you here according to what happened here and what was going to happen there. But all we know is this and we just have to move according to it and then, and then pray that Master who has the bigger picture will take care of us. And you see, he will. And, and so much of our doubt and fear is actually a lack of faith. In Divine Mother's love for us. Why would she cut us loose? Why would she throw us over a cliff? Why would she do that? What kind of a mother would do that to her children? Just because they're confused and they don't know. You see? Just turn all those things around, and the spiritual path becomes so much easier and so much more fun. <laughs> And it's just amazing to me how much teaching there is in them, in the feeling of them and in the words of them. That walk like a man has that line, give life your heart, bless everything that's grown. Fear not the loving, all this world's your own. You know, it's, it's ironic because that magnificent phrase is in the middle of a song that's called, who cares whether they want to go with you? Who cares if anyone believes in you? Who cares? You just go and do it yourself. But then it goes back and it has that teaching in it that you have to also, at the same time that you're going, following your own path, it doesn't separate you from everyone i mean i've listened to that song for 50 years and i just really noticed the juxtaposition i'd always loved that particular verse and it only just occurred to me that it's in the middle of a song where you would think the message would be exactly the opposite you know it's just uh, when something is divinely inspired there's so much buried in it that it that's why it's that's what makes it scripture i mean just my saying there um the kundalini the ancient resistance to truth. It's just, there's just that's a whole lifetime of meditation in there. And it's just one line in an otherwise very large book. That's why people just keep reading the scriptures over and over again, because it keeps talking to us in different ways. The good news about that is, when I came to Ananda when I was 24, just before I was 24, I had already sort of run through a number of things that were supposed to last longer in my life than they did. And it just, you know, it sort of just, they started out good and then they just petered out really fast. And I didn't know whether this would too. I mean, there was nothing, I had no way of anticipating the future. But the one thing about this path that's just been so marvelous is it, it's infinite, literally. And so you just, you never get tired of it. You just find another way to get into it. I was saying about singing these songs and Dharana was testifying it, In Swami's little book about his songs, a tale of songs, he says in the introduction with it, he basically pleads with us, he said, not merely to listen to this music but to sing it or play it. He said because when the vibration runs through and what he wrote was, everyone who does tells me, he does it so he doesn't have to assert it himself, everyone who does tells me that the experience of it is transformative. And even if you're not very musical, you can just get Swami to sing it and you can just in the privacy of your car or in the privacy of your own bedroom, you can put his voice in your ear and just sing along with him. But then you hear it in ways that are different. And it, you know, it's a unique style of music, but that's the least of it. Um, that I mean, I'm always encouraging, you all are doing well under Barr's care to be able to sing parts, but just to sing the melody without being able to sing the parts is much more important than not singing it. Swami so, said again, like the color lavender, that the music is the vibration of this ray of grace, it's a, it's a musical expression of attunement with Master, which is a very interesting thing to say if you just think of it as melody, and not think of it as Western or Eastern or anything like that. I mean, what that actually means, we have to explore it. I was some of you have heard a talk recently because some of you know more about my life than I remember, but I was going through a hard time where I couldn't control my mind. It was. As I said, it was always having conversations with people who weren't in the room. It was having heated conversations with people who weren't in the room. <laughs> and uh my friend Karen, who's the choir director, told me to sing. She said, Are you singing? And I'm not a singer, but I do I sing around my house all the time. Are you singing? And I hadn't been much. She told me to sing Little Kathy. And Little Kathy is, is a children's song. Little Kathy went dancing, went dancing, went dancing. She went out in the garden. There she saw a small robin, and the robin wouldn't dance because it was timid and tiny. I mean, and then the chorus is lura, lura, lara. Is that what it is? No, no, it's not. I always do that wrong. Uh, wait, little, wait, so gay, that's right. Little Kathy went dancing. Her heart was so gay. It was about as far away from the conversations I was having with people who weren't in the room <laughs> and i frankly i mean i thought it was a preposterous suggestion but i was a little desperate i just started singing that song and and while i was singing it i my consciousness shifted into what the song was and then when i would come out i would sort of fall back but then i just i just kept singing that song and i honestly think it helped turn the tide in on a very difficult internal situation I was dealing with because I just couldn't be what I was when I was upset and also talk about little Kathy dancing in the garden with this gay heart you know we're nothing but vibrations you know it's just that's just so hard to grasp Swami said music not only reflects consciousness it creates it and so if we have a consciousness that we don't like Music is one of the best ways to create a new one because, you know, when you are doing it, you are in that vibration. It's not a thought. It's a vibration. So when you're doing it, you've changed. This is like, this is how you stay on the path for your whole life, which is you have this huge um, treasure chest of options. And if one thing doesn't work, you just try another. I never would have crossed my mind to sing that song if my friend hadn't suggested it to me. And she suggested it so emphatically. She can be quite emphatic. And she was being quite emphatic that I was not only to sing, I was to sing that song. Okay. I mean, I thought it was nuts. (laughs) Really. But I really learned something very profound from it. So, you know, sometimes the... Swamiji said once, because creation is so complicated we think that God is complicated because he's the creator of it all. He said, in fact, the opposite is true. He said God is very, very simple because, you see, complexity is when you get farther and farther away from the source. And when you get closer and closer to the source, you're getting closer and closer to one. So your options go down rather than go up. So the closer you get to the center of creation, the simpler everything becomes. And it really it goes down to Little Kathy went dancing, went dancing, went dancing. And it's just your an intellectual mind just wants to find all the reasons why, first of all, you feel silly, just like the little robin felt silly. I'm afraid I'd look silly, look silly, look silly. That's what the robin says. <laughs> you know, but you, you just play it all out in your mind and all of a sudden, why, why not? you're back to the one. Swami made that statement at a satsang, actually, at his house in Gorgon. The next morning, he said, I don't think most people appreciated how important that was, he said. He said, they just heard me say it, but I said, he said, that was one of the most important things I've ever said. He said, it all comes down to the one and it's very simple. And uh, this is why I've been talking this whole time. We worry and worry and worry and worry and it's really just common sense. I'm a disciple of Master doing my best. The closer you get, the more all of those complexities just don't make any difference anymore. So, any other questions or thoughts? This is our last 15 minutes here for today. What were we talking about, Mushum? Oh, it was. I had asked you. Yeah. Oh yes i remember now but go ahead and, go ahead and ask it right so my question was uh, that uh, when you wrote the book you finished writing the book did you get any feeling or some message from swami kriyananda just like you got a message from him that this is the correct name for the book so did you get any message from him saying that right. you did good you like he liked the book i had gotten another written question that said just to talk about more about the experience of writing that book so let me just say a few things cuz i mean i did come to india because the book was being published here that was the immediate incentive but to my mind that book is really a i hope it's a map for the journey for the you know the next 25 years of ananda or longer um captain patty had asked me some some questions yesterday just in the afternoon about Narayani and Shurjo being the first readers of the manuscript and so on, and how they came to write the introduction. And I, I wrote, and I woke up this morning, I realized there was just one little piece of that conversation that I didn't finish. When I, when I came out of seclusion with that book in July of a year ago, Narayani and Sherjo were in America, and the way, the way our timing worked, they actually were living in my house for a few days. And so I arrived, and they were already ensconced. And I'm carrying the finished manuscript, which nobody has seen, And um, I I needed somebody to read it. I mean, I knew that I was going to have to give my baby over to the cold, hard world (laughs) at some point. And uh, when Narayani was finishing the book she wrote about Swami, she invited me to Spain. And I I was the first reader for that manuscript. So I realized if for no other reason, just as a gesture of friendship, I needed to hand it to her and to Shurjo, which turned out to be extremely perfect because they gave. They said to me everything that I hoped people would say after reading the book. But I also realized after, the, and also because of the things they said, I had intended to ask one of my peers to write the introduction to the book, somebody who'd basically lived the same life I had lived, and I had several possibilities in mind. But after they read it and they talked to me, I realized that this book is for the future. It's not for the present. And that that the introduction needs to be written by someone who's going to be acting out that future, not for someone like me or one of my peers who were going to be off the planet in a relatively short period of time and all the responsibility to be in someone else's hands. I didn't write that for the people who lived through it. I wrote it for the people who hadn't lived through it. Um, But the question of whether I felt Swamiji's response, I said to Mushami that if I hadn't felt his... Um, positive response to it, I would still be in seclusion writing it because I couldn't stop until I knew that I had done what he asked me to do. And I had a great deal of difficulty for all the reasons I've referenced about writing it because I kept trying to write it in the midst of doing other things. And it finally just came to me that, that there was no possible way that this could be done without... Completely excluding all other input. And I didn't, I, so I stopped working on it. I stopped working on it about February, and I just, of one year, whatever year it was, and I really didn't know what I was going to do. And then I went to a meeting at Ananda Village where Kirtani and Anand from Assisi were there. Anand has owned this piece of property up in Washington State in America, up by the Canadian border. He's owned it for decades with nothing on it. They had just put a little tiny cabin on it, just a little not a Swedish home, but a little particle board manufactured house. And Kirtani, who's was very intuitive, without having any idea what I was dealing with, just walked up to me and said, "'We just put a house there, "'and I see you there writing,' she said." And I said, "'Oh, I see me there too.'" And we discussed the calendar, and I said, "'I'll go on June 1st.'" And so I drove 1,000 miles from home to a place I'd never seen before, that was very isolated, had no neighbors, no internet, no telephone service. Inadvertently, Anand put it next to this hill, and this hill is is between himself and all the radio signals, so he doesn't have any reception there. It's kind of a a bother for him, but it's done now. Perfect for me, because I just was completely isolated. My friends made me get an air horn, so in case I got in trouble, I mean, the nearest neighbor was like a mile and a half away, and, you know, I forgot, I forgot to tell the neighbors that if they hear the air horn, it's me. But, <laughs> but as soon as I was alone, really alone, and I, no phone, no internet, and no neighbors, no nothing, I could, Swami started talking to me is the only way I can say it. And it was also very interesting to me because I presume he was talking to me a lot before that, but I was too busy to hear him. There's a There was a novel that was very popular in America. It was called The Color Purple. I don't know if it was popular here or not. But it's this saga of the, of the American South and black people's struggle. And, and the woman who wrote it, Alice Walker, she said she was living in New York City and those people kept trying to tell her their story. But she said she just couldn't hear them clearly because New York was so noisy. So she went down to some country place in the South, and as soon as it was quiet, they could tell her story. I mean, this is a, quote, fictional account. But a lot of times, much more is happening, but we're too distracted. So that in itself was an enormous lesson for me, With that when I was completely concentrated and completely alone, basically, I don't want to make it seem like automatic writing, because it wasn't like that. I was totally engaged, and I was I used every part of me um, but Swami dictated the book. He, he just, I had to make countless decisions and I could just feel what all the right decisions were and it wasn't rational. It was just, it would feel like this was what needed to be done. And if I wasn't right, the only way I could say it, he would nag me. I mean, it would keep me awake at night. I would remember, everybody who does creative work knows how this is. If you do something really creative, when it's wrong, it, it bothers you. Even if it's a business deal, whatever it is, it just keeps at you. It won't It won't give you any rest. And, and when I would respond and change it, then it would immediately go away. And sometimes Swami and I had disputes about things. And every so often I became attached to something that really wasn't a good idea. And he would just keep after me until I listened. And we, I mean, it, it was to the point where, I mean, it was just like he was there. I could just, I mean, it's not like he was talking, but I could just feel his influence. And it it really taught me a tremendous amount about intuition and about the continuing presence of the masters. I I always knew it, but not as vividly as I knew it then because in the absence of all distractions. So, because in the course of my whole life, I've sort of mostly known what to do. With uh, I think I was saying this in another context, with an absurd amount of confidence. Although one of my friends said, you're not right as often as you think you are. <laughs> and um, Sai Ganesh, who many of you know, described himself as always certain but not always right. <laughs> so that's me. But nonetheless, I've always known what to do in major ways, and I've just been able to wait until I could feel it. But it wasn't as clear to me until I was in the absence of all other input how directly swami has been talking to me my whole life and it was very um helpful to have it so clear you know that that he's he's the link for me and for many of us we were talking we were also talking about this you know swamiji throughout his whole life and up until now he's always said master is the guru even when he would initiate he would not initiate in his own name And he wanted his picture not to be the sixth picture on the altar. You know, he was very emphatic about all that. But he was also very definite, which is, Master has sent you to me. You know, of course, Master has sent you to me. And he's commissioned me to be Master's instrument, because how else would we know? And Swami actually said that Master said to him that he would have, that Swamiji would have spiritual responsibility for people which is an interesting phrase and it, and it doesn't preclude master's role, but spiritual responsibility is more than being incidental. And Swami put it for most of the people who come to Ananda, he said. He said, I'm their link to master. And, and, it, and it's, on one level, it's it's mysterious and glorious. On the other level, it's just common sense. You know, Daya was the link for many of those who came to master there. Ananda Moye, um, countless other disciples, Jyotish in our world, Jaya, myself. You know, we're all links, all of you. All of you will be will be and are links for Master because how else will people find out about him? So on one hand, you know, you think, oh, this is some grand destiny, you know, that only a few people have. And I haven't named everyone in this room, which I could, you know, Aditya, Dharana, everybody I mean, I'll just name every one of you. We're all links. And it's not a compliment, it's a responsibility. And Swamiji, so often with us, would say that to us. You know, you have an obligation. It's a divine obligation, and it's a divine opportunity. Because what is more meaningful, here, whatever the question is, I said that Jesus asks, How much did you love? And so it says, what are the practical ways to do it? Well, the practical ways to do it are you pray to master, you pray to Swamiji, and you say, how can I help? Who, how can I give? Swamiji was always, he was he was always appropriate. He was never inappropriate, but he also never hesitated to help people if he could. I remember being in the Ohm bookstore in the Metro Metropolitan Mall in Gorgon way early on, And Swamiji, he often wore his orange robes out in public, but that day he was in his Western clothes. And we were just standing near the spiritual books in the bookstore, and some random fellow pulled out autobiography of a yogi. And Swamiji, who just looked like an American tourist, said, I was his disciple, (laughs) just like that. (laughs) He was the greatest man I've ever known. It was a little more than the man wanted, you know. (laughs) But I just was so touched by it. Because I don't think if I had seen that man pull out Autobiography of a Yogi, I would have done it like that. But Swami just did it out of just childlike enthusiasm. But if that wasn't what somebody was asking, the story that I've mentioned was in another context was, we used to go to, Swami would go on vacation to Goa almost every January for a while, to get away from the cold in Italy and then to get away from the pollution in Delhi. And for a number of years, he invited me among many others to go with him. So it sort of became a... Time warp is totally set in, so I don't know how many times we went, but a number. And once, once we were in a taxi cab and Swamiji wanted to go to this certain Kashmiri shop where he knew the people and they had beautiful things, the Goan taxi driver was really annoyed that these people were going to go spend money and give it to the Kashmiris instead of to the Goans because, of course, the Kashmiris have come down to Goa because of the chaos in their country and they've taken over a lot of things in Goa. So the taxi driver was kvetching about it a good bit. So it was very interesting. Swami just started a conversation with him and the conversation was about indigenous Goan crafts and, you know, what What are the specialties of Goa? And, you know, how could they be developed more? And a lot of people who come to Goa would actually be more naturally interested in Goan things, wouldn't they, than in Kashmiri things, which are just from so far away. And, you know, he just... And we, we, we used that same cab driver two or three times. And, it, and so in all the conversations, Swami just kept continuing this completely positive conversation about the potential of Goa He never touched any other attitude that that man had. And then we stopped using the driver and we just went on his way. It was just like Swami just stood in front of him or sat there and thought, how can I help? And you know, if he had said, I'm a disciple of a great master, Yogananda was the greatest man I ever knew, it it wouldn't have gone anywhere. That wasn't what we were doing. But he was always conscious of the fact that he, he is a disciple of a great master And if Master were sitting here, what would he do? How would he love? How would he help? And that's our job. You know, that's our dharma. That's our destiny. That's our divine mission. That's why we were born. Master isn't sitting here. Swamiji isn't sitting here anymore either. I'm going to be leaving really soon. I'm doing most of the talking right now. But you all are going to be in a lot of situations where I'm not going to be there to answer it. So who will? You know, if Master had a better option than you, he would have put them in the room. (laughs) You know, if Master had a better option than me, he would put me in the room. It's not a question, just like I was saying about the music. You don't have to sing it well. Um, Swamiji's mother had an expression, Gertrude, she was a lovely person. She had an expression that Swami would sometimes quote. If it's worth doing, it's worth doing badly, (laughs) she said. She said. And I sort of feel like if it's worth being an instrument, it's worth being a bad instrument. <laughs> because if it's someone's misfortune to only have me as an instrument, then instead of Swami, well they're just gonna have to have me. But the more we think like that, you know, because in in a real sense, by the time we're liberated, I had this conversation with Swamiji once when he said, Well, I'm not the guru because you know, I'm not an avatar or whatever. I said, well, Swamiji, the relationship must start long before everybody is liberated. Don't you think so? I mean, we all we all have our spiritual families. We all have to liberate six others. That's what Master said. We will all someday be gurus. I'm Really. And, and none of this is like arrogance. This is the truth of the path. When Mother Teresa, when the journalist tried to sort of catch her up in ego, they said, Mother... Mother Trace of Calcutta. Mother, some people say you're a saint, you know, and she was supposed to say, oh, no, not me, you know. (laughs) I don't know what they expected her to say. She looked right at the journalist and said, and why aren't you a saint? (laughs) Which was like, yeah, and why aren't you a channel? Why aren't you speaking for your guru? Why aren't you being an instrument of Swamiji? Why not? Don't go beyond what you know. Don't suddenly stand up and say, come, my child, and I will touch you on the chest and you will go into samadhi. <laughs> Don't go beyond your portfolio. <laughs> but within the range of what you know, there will be people who know less. And that's, that's all that's required. There will be people who know less. So you tell them what you know. When Haridas... Haridas came to Ananda when he was about 18, I think. We seventeen? We all felt really old when Haridas started getting grey because he was always the baby. And uh he went with Swamiji to Los Angeles on a uh speaking tour or something, and Haridas being very uh charming actually and also having a lot of Hutzpah, he went to some radio station or television station to try to persuade them to put Swami on the air. And the people, after a while, said, well, we don't know anything about this Kriyananda guy, but we like you. (laughs) So Haridas kind of calls Swami on the phone to tell him what a mess he's gotten himself into. (laughs) You know, what is he supposed to do? And Swami himself said, he thought for a moment, Haridas? (laughs) But then he thought, why not? You know, just like, why not? So Haridas went and sat on this television show, And he was wearing his bangle on his wrist at that time. And so it showed. So the interviewer points to the bangle and asks him what that is. Haridas says later, his mind spins with things like, you know, it's a a perfect balance of pure metals and they have these vibrations and they relate to the planets, you know. Just all of that runs through and just turns into hash in his brain. He can't think of anything that's not going to sound completely ridiculous because all of that was beyond his portfolio. I mean, he really couldn't explain what the bangle was. So he didn't try. He just backed up to where he was comfortable. And he said, well, you know, they say a lot of things about it. My guru recommended it. I think he did point out that it was silver, gold, and copper. I mean, he, just, he told them what he knew. And he said, but here's what it means to me. Every time I look at it, it reminds me of the high ideals to which I have dedicated my life. I mean... How? What more perfect answer could you give? And it was just a perfect answer of how to be a channel. I'm I'm just who I am. And if it helps people, that's great. And it certainly helps me to try, you know. And this is this is what we're working with. When I typed Swami's manuscript, which I eventually published as this book, you know, I thought a lot about <clears throat> being way beyond my portfolio in this. And I I mean, I just. I think I said earlier I couldn't read Swami's writing because it just intimidated me so much to read his writing that I just had to put it out of my mind and I thought somebody else could write a better book but Swami asked me to write one so I'll just write it and I will do the best that I can do and what happened is I did. I just didn't quit and I, I worked on it over and over again until I real until he stopped nagging me that he knew he knew he'd gotten the best he could get out of me. And then actually, I'm really happy to have it published. I'm really happy that a lot of people have been kind enough to say they like it. I'm really happy to hear that they feel Swami's vibration. And that's all terrific. But honestly, if none of that had ever happened, if I'd never even published it, it would have been worth it just for me because of the exercise in attunement. And so we we have to come down to all of those things. You know, this is our common sense. if if it's worth it to me, if it helps me to be in tune, and then if it can also help others, that's wonderful. But to have the courage to offer what you know to somebody who needs it, we do that for ourselves. And then if it also helps them, oh, isn't that wonderful? Haridas, again, to quote him, he said, something inspiring happened and I got to be there, (laughs) which is just sort of about what it is. Something inspiring happened, somebody got helped, and I got to be there. Isn't that wonderful? What a joy for all of us. All right.